Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Chapter 6. Now, Dance, 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 you followed that with uh, something called uh, Play by the Rules, is that right? Oh, Playboy the Rules was the flip side of Dance, Dance, Dance. And there was, a, there was a big discussion as to what we should do, either the ballad first or the, or the, or the up-tempo. So we, we did, did, we did uh, Dance, Dance, Dance first. The second release was uh, uh, my, my, I had a thing with three-letter um, three titles, so it was Why, Why, Why. Right. Uh, but and, but um, let me just interrupt you here. Since we're uh, yeah. talking about the uh, the flip side, the ballad, why don't we give a listen, then we'll uh, talk some more with Scott Stevens, lead voice of the Cavaliers, and there's lots to talk about with uh, Scott. He's uh, he's my special guest here in Don Kay's doo-wop shop on the Belmont's Internet Radio. That, of course, is the Cavaliers with the lead voice of Scott Stevens. And uh, not only uh, were you the lead, but you wrote the thing, too. So uh, now you were looking for a new song, and you mentioned Why, Why, Why. You like those uh, (laughs) repetitive titles, right? (laughs) Yeah, and and, and the funny thing about Why, Why, Why is uh, the the Mellow Kings did a song called Tell Me Why. I think it was the Mellow Kings that did Tell Me Why. And, you know, after I wrote Why, 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 uh, somebody brought it to my attention that it sounded a lot like Tell Me Why. And I brought it to the attention of uh, the writers at Ivy Records. And they said, no, leave it alone, leave it alone. It really doesn't sound exactly like it, but 
But uh, that's that's really, I guess, how I got the idea for the song. It's just like Dance, Dance, Dance. Um, when I was listening to Atha Hop, I sort of got the idea for for the uh, for Dance, Dance, Dance by listening to songs like Atha Hop. Yeah, it has that uh, kind of uh, what hectic sound to it. Like it's it's really moving. It's cooking along. Yeah. So uh, something by Danny and the Juniors, the uh, At the Hop or uh, Rock and Roll is Here to Stay, kind of uh, gave you the idea for that dance, 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 huh? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. In the book White Boy, a rock and roll story, they had a problem. Who's going to fill Steve Wiles' shoes as their bass player? Who's going to help Steve Glazer write music for the group? Who's going to hold rehearsals? Who's going to hook up with a record company? Maybe there'd been a big mistake. And Steve Glazer didn't know what drove him to try to accomplish the impossible. He guesses that it was a combination of youthful ignorance, a sprinkling of confidence pixie dust, and just plain luck, or the lack of it, that ended up putting them on the road that they traveled. Junie Smith was a bass singer from Harlem. He became their fifth member. He was a high school dropout. He made his money from the numbers racket that was prevalent in New York City at the time. The numbers were the equivalent of an illegal pick three lottery game. New York City in 1958 was hard for the black community, especially for the teenagers. Escape from the ghetto was not through basketball, football, or baseball. Those were just games played before going off to college, work, or the army. For a black teenager, rock and roll was the means to escape. College was rarely an option. A good portion of the teenage population never finished high school. From the 40s and into the early 60s, a period of mass migration began. Blacks from the South were flocking to the big northern cities, especially New York. The predominantly white Jewish population began to move out of Harlem and into the boroughs of New York City, Long Island, Westchester County, and New Jersey. It was called White Flight. Junie was a true bass singer with perfect pitch. Jackie Morgan found him. The new name for the group was not the Cavaliers, as Steve had thought. Sixty years is a long time to try and remember something. As Steve was researching his book, he began to open up dusty boxes of memorabilia. He found items that he truly hadn't remembered. And while looking at the labels from some old demo records, he discovered that the first group name he came up with was the Scarlets. He guessed that he didn't like that as much and changed it to the Cavaliers with no objection from the group. They had started to rehearse three times a week, mostly at Steve's house or at the community center. The rehearsals at Junie's apartment in Harlem were special. He remembered going up five flights of stairs to Junie's grandma's apartment. The furniture was dilapidated, torn slipcovers, warped floors, and the smell of ancient days permeated the air. Lloyd Needleman and Steve, the two white boys in the group, were at first treated like an unwelcome presence in the neighborhood. They would rehearse for a few hours, play cards, mostly hearts, and then head back home to do homework while listening to music on portable radios. There are highs and lows, as well as some sad and occasionally hysterical events that occurred during this time. However, one of these events tops them all. During Steve's singing days, he had come to pay attention to the opposite sex, and he began seeing a girl that we'll call Helen for the sake of this story. Helen was the daughter of one of Steve's mom's friends. Her father was the equipment manager for the New York Giants. She lived in the Highbridge section of the Bronx, which was a primarily Irish neighborhood about 10 blocks from the Sedgwick Projects. At some point, they just stopped seeing each other. She was blonde, blue-eyed, and Catholic, every Jewish mother's dream. Steve's mom was delighted when they stopped seeing each other. It turns out that Helen felt a little bit different than her mother. She was just mad. One sunny day, the group was rehearsing at the pocket park in the projects. There had to have been at least 50 kids there playing rock and roll music on their portable radios or listening to the Cavaliers practice. In the middle of one of their songs, out of the corner of Steve's eye, he saw a group of boys approaching, using the term group very loosely here. Most of them had either zip guns, bats, knives, or chains in their hands. A dead giveaway that trouble was coming. 
The Cavaliers kept on singing, while the crowd of kids scattered, leaving them alone to face a mob. A tall, freckle-faced kid with acne-marked skin strutted over to him and said, Hey, shithead, we're here to fight the gang, the Cavaliers. Steve's heart was beating like it would explode from his chest, and he shouted back, You're shitting me. He replied, Yeah, the Cavaliers. We're the high-bridge Ikers, and we're here to rumble. As if on cue, they all broke out in unison. We're the fucking Cavaliers, and we're a singing group. They started to harmonize. We're a fucking singing group. We're a fucking singing group. Seconds after they started singing... Freckleface started to raise his bat above his head and aim it at Steve, but about five cop cars and two paddy wagons came screeching down the street in front and in back of the Ikes. Looking up, as they were being hauled away, Steve saw police on the rooftops. The Cavaliers stayed put and serenaded them as they were led off to jail with We're a Fucking Singing Group. They sang it in what became perfect five-part harmony. Helen must have been really pissed at Steve because she set up the rumble to get even. Steve would later say that he never did write a song called We're a Fucking Singing Group, but he bets if he had that it would have been a hit. So, um, my mom... Now, let me uh, ask you, let me ask you, since he was one of the guys you approached, uh, what did you think when they came up and said, would you like to be in the group? Uh, I mean, was that something you... Uh, yeah, I think that that was. Uh, singing prior to them? Prior? I had been singing before that, you know, before I got in the group because mm -hmm. uh, I guess it uh, it was in my mama's cooking a little bit of soul that I had or something like that, you know. But I it was a popular thing to do and to be a part of a group in those days. Oh, so in turn, I was uh, very happy to be among among my brothers, as you may say. <laughs> now, when you. Uh were approached. Were you already singing with a group actively, or did they? No, no, just... no. I, I wasn't singing. I think there was uh, one fellow. Was it Junie who had been singing with a group? No, no. Not at that time. Not no. at that time. I'm not. I don't think Junie was singing. Well, he might have been. He might. Well, you we recruited him as, a, as the second. No, we were, we were at that, that moment. We were the Royals, and we were the two Royals. Right. Yeah. And then we said, "Hey, Kay, we, we found uh, Alan. Okay, now we're the three Royals. Mm -hmm. So it was working that way. Yes. Okay. We were just so, uh, building ourselves. Now, from the three royals, you went to the, the satellites, right? The right. five satellites, And then yes. we appeared on the uh, Ted Max original amateur. Well, that's my mother's fault, because yes. my mom decided that There's we belonged in, right? We Correct. belonged in show business, and hadn't she... recorded yet. I mean, no, 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 we hadn't so recorded yet. The five satellites on the Ted Max amateur. Tell Correct. us what happened. Right, she picks up the phone, she calls up Ted Max's office and gets us an audition in August of 1957. Okay. And um, after we auditioned for them... They book us on September 2nd, Labor Day, 1957. Oh, my, he's got this yes. guy. <laughs> yeah. He's got it written down. He's got it written down. Oh, he's cheating, he's cheating. Yes. I brought the TV guide with me. And they booked us as uh, the Satellite's Vocal Quintet, Bronx, New York. Okay? My two regrets. Uh, number one, I think it was a communist plot. But on November 2nd, which was two months after that, right. Russia launched the first space satellite. Now, had they done it on September 2nd, the day we were on national TV, we might have become very famous at that moment. I mean, a group. And the other regret I have is that two weeks after we were on, Anne Margaret made her debut on Ted Mack's original Amateur Hour. Okay. We missed that one, too. But we were... In what sense, though? I mean, she was pretty in you guys. Obviously. Yes, that's a true. lot prettier. A <laughs> but lot. how did that affect you? What do you mean? <clears throat> we, um... Would we have won the fourth time? 
No, we, no, we won we once. Won, we won once, Twi and we came on the second, second time, time right? uh, and we lost. And we lost. Right. Okay, okay. We did a song called playing spoons or something. Something like that. <laughs> Actually, we lost to a Spanish trumpet player, uh, okay. and the uh, governor or the uh, ambassador of Mexico introduced him. And I turned around to Steve and I said, "There's no way in hell we're going to win this time." <laughs> but uh, yeah, we did a little, little political situation. Winning about. once did it? I mean, it had to do something. Oh, it's great. I mean, As a matter of fact, for your own, you know, edification and ego. But, well, the uh, talk about ego or nerves uh, we did a song called Little Darling uh, by the Diamonds right. and uh, you know in that song you have to start with a high falsetto uh, beginning and there was no cue in and I was so nervous that I kept on running into the bathroom screaming I can't find my note I can't find my note came out we did the, I did the first verse twice but we won in spite of it and it was great it was, it was but it was live in front of 8 million people let me and, uh, ask you this when you won that uh, you know, amateur, what did you get <laughs> expense money? We did, we did, did get expense get money. I mean, yeah, we got not for winning. No, no, not for winning. Just so everyone appears on the show gets okay. a $10 bill or a $20 bill or something, you know, for expenses. Right. We got, uh, we got uh, tortured by about eight hours of rehearsal for the original amateur hour, quote-unquote. <laughs> right. That's what we got. And what else did we get? We that got, didn't uh, uh, further your career in any way. Well, it gave us some exposure, I think, and uh, we, we didn't get a recording contract until about uh, seven, eight months later. The first demo records were recorded at Allegro Studios in the basement of the Brill Building at 1650 Broadway in the summer of 1957. The Brill Building was the most important location of record publishers and music labels in the city, probably in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s. The cost of a session was $20 per half an hour, and that included an engineer and all the sound equipment. Steve got the group together for a rehearsal at the community center, and while they were there, they decided that a drummer might be helpful for at least the rhythm accompaniment on the demos. Hanging out at the community playing pool was one of the local kids that Steve knew that played drums. He went to the high school of performing arts. For decades, tourists have trekked to New York City to glimpse historic sites like the Empire State Building, Rockefeller Center, and Central Park. But by the late 1990s, a parade of pilgrims were headed to places like Tom's Restaurant, H&H Bagels, and the kitchen that inspired the soup Nazi. Now we're gonna go out on a bus, I'm gonna take you to all these sites made famous on Seinfeld, we're gonna have a little reality tour. The surreal host for this offbeat tour is Kenny Kramer. Like his namesake, Kenny Kramer doesn't have a regular job. However, he has managed to make something out of his connection to a show about nothing. Long before he became the answer to a Seinfeld trivia question, Kenny Kramer was a funny kid growing up in the Bronx. We thought he had a great imagination for, for the absurd and for the comedic, and we thought he had talent. In 1958, Kenny got into Manhattan's prestigious School for the Performing Arts. Yearning to be more than a class clown, he dropped out at the age of 17 to work for a local comedian. I was writing jokes and giving him jokes and listening to my jokes getting laughs, which gave me the confidence to realize that, hey, I can do these jokes myself. In 1969, Kenny married a woman he met at a club, and two years later, they became parents. Sadly, the daughter they shared wasn't enough to sustain their five-year marriage. Alone, he can continued to work hard to make it as a stand-up comic. And by 1975, Kenny was performing in nightclubs and at rock shows. Then, his ex-wife unexpectedly gave him custody of their four-year-old daughter. 
I was doing stand-up comedy at rock concerts and living this insane lifestyle. Having the responsibility for a little child calmed me down to the extent that it probably saved my life. Growing up with my dad was, uh, well, you might find this really hard to believe, but it wasn't probably like your normal household. Kenny's wild ways were a sharp contrast to the quiet comedian who lived across the hall, Larry David. Well, our personalities, for some crazy reason, just complemented each other. Where I was wild, he was a little subdued, and it just worked out into a great friendship. One of Larry David's writing partners was an up-and-coming comic named Jerry Seinfeld. When Larry and Jerry sat down to write a sitcom together, their comic inspiration was right next door. Larry walked into my house one day and says, Kramer, they offered me an opportunity to write this pilot with Seinfeld. I want to base a character on you and call him Kramer. The name Kramer stuck, and NBC bought the show about four quirky friends in Manhattan. Seinfeld debuted in 1990, with actor Michael Richards playing Kramer. He did an awful lot of physical things that Ken didn't really do. By the fall of 95, Seinfeld was the most popular comedy on TV. This Seinfeld show is so huge, this character Kramer's becoming this international icon, and I'm thinking, if I don't cash in on this, I'm an idiot. Kenny figured it was time to make a buck from his link to the hit show. I had this great idea. Why don't I do a Seinfeld reality check? And as I had this thought, a gray line tour bus drove underneath my window, and a light bulb went off and said, a tour, a reality tour. Well, my reaction was, really? <laughs> yeah. Will it be that amusing? That's the tour I would do first. You know, if it's the Great Wall, and then Kramer's tour. I was excited because I was able to now tell people what my father did for a living. In January of 96, Kenny rented a van and mapped out a tour of local sites made famous by Seinfeld. He called the New York Times, which ran an article about the Seinfeld reality tour. Once that happened, like, everybody picked it up, and I was literally famous the next day. When the Seinfeld reality tour began on January 27, 1996, it was an immediate hit. Thanks to Kenny's tour, fame had found Cosmo Kramer's alter ego. I was pretty besieged by media for, for the first couple, three years. We've got the original Not Across the Hall, the one whose real-life adventures inspired the Seinfeld character. Here's Kenny Kramer. Hey. Kenny! Then in 2001, three years after Seinfeld went off the air, this madman of the people became the libertarian candidate for mayor of New York City. I'm Kramer, I'm running for mayor. You, you a New York City voter? Some people were taking him seriously and some people thought, you know, it was just another Kramer-esque thing to do. Though he won only 2,201 votes, Kenny Kramer managed to do what he does best keep himself in the spotlight. Kenny Kramer has had 15 minutes of fame, but those 15 minutes of fame would have to be measured in like super dog years. The show that gave Kenny Kramer his 15 minutes lasted nine seasons, but Kenny's planning on sticking around a bit longer. If I'm having 15 minutes, I'm gonna live forever. It's genuinely hard to get any more New York than Seinfeld. I think Seinfeld in, in its time came to represent a lot of things about New York. And there is a tie to this story. And that is that Kenny Kramer, the guy who is doing drums on the Cavaliers demos when, when they were starting uh, the search for a label, it's, it's Kenny Kramer. It's the inspiration for Cosmo Kramer. And he's still active today as like a pretty, prevalent 
character in New York. His name was Kenny Kramer. Steve yelled out, hey, Kenny, you got drumsticks with you? He said, nope, just my brushes. Steve replied, great. You want to come down to Allegro Studios and record some music with us? He quickly replied, oh, yeah. And off they went to Manhattan to record three songs, Angel, Bench of Love, and That's What Little Girls Are Made Of. With their demos in hand, they set off to search for a record label. Frank, jump in. You got anything? This is less about events, and it's a little more philosophical. Mm -hmm. Um, Coincidentally, I'm writing the word harmony, and you're saying the word harmony. You're asking him about the the choirs and the synagogue music. What does harmony do to you, and what does harmony do for you? It's like, uh, it just sends me to another place. It really does. It's soothing. Uh, I, I am, I, I am, the one thing I am very good at is, is harmonizing. Uh, the, the last CD, the CD, uh, the song, um, Sunday in May, the five people you hear in back of me harmonizing, that's all me. Mm. I'm the five part harmony in, in, in a, in a song that I'm singing solo on. Uh, so that's, I have supposedly a unique ability to harmonize with a kitchen sink if I needed to. It's, uh, it just... It came innately? And I don't know why. Mm. You know, like Jack, when Jack, we were in being interviewed on Don K. Reed, Jackie said, uh, when I took over the group after kicking Steve Well out or him resigning, and that's a whole other story, <laughs> um, Steve ran the group. Without, without Steve, there was no Cavaliers. And he gave us our parts. He gave us our harmonies. He wrote the songs. He called the rehearsals. Uh... He booked us on wherever we were going to appear. I mean, he did it all. The Cavaliers are Steve Glazer. There's no separating the two. And that's what Jackie said about me and my music. Even though I'm a musical literate, I don't read music. I'm more of a poet when I, when I write. And somehow the music just comes. Don't know how. It's sort of magical. But the music fits in. And harmony came naturally too. Mm-hmm. You were able to do that. It wasn't studied in a way like that. You were sort of like no, you were able to. Never was never was really studied. Although I, you know, I there was a, I played the saxophone as a as a band in the band in junior high school. I was horrible. Hmm. I was notes, so right? bad. Not harmony. So bad. Skills, but right? and and you know I I could follow along when I when I'm because I'm in the choir now in the right. synagogue, mm-hmm. and I can follow along with with the rhythms and the cadence and. Mm-hmm. I know in the general direction the the, the, the music is taking me, mm-hmm. with the notes the way they are on on the on on the sheet, but um, but I can't really read. Mm-hmm. And as far as guitar playing, I'm a rhythm guitarist. If you if you get, I'll, I'll do the chords, but that's about it. And that's because I just remember where to place the fingers after after looking at it in a book for a thousand times. Yeah. So it feels kind of academic, whereas for you, singing and harmony feel you can surrender to it's them. It's like walking. It's like walking, right? It's just. That's what I do, mm-hmm. I, 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 without any thought about it. Yep. I want to get into that. Uh, I want to talk about the reason. Says who I love, oh yes, I always will. Go 
This is Don't Forget Me, a podcast about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Music and words are adapted with the permission of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. We hope you'll continue with us on the rest of this limited series and musical adventure. Check the show notes to find out more about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers.